David figures right up there. And we're going to be studying his life. But in the midst of all that, also looking at Samuel's life and King Saul and all that happened there. Um, so tonight's kind of an introduction. And I'd just like to pose a number of questions here at the beginning. And first of all, why even study David? Well, there might, there's a lot of reasons or answers to that. Some good and some that are lacking. Um, but it does, it, we should be thinking through what, let's put it this way. Why does God put these narratives in the Old Testament? Well, let's focus on the Old Testament figures for now. Uh, what, what purpose do they have for us? Let me throw out another question. Are Bible characters supposed to be our heroes in any way, shape, or form? That may sound like a loaded question. Some of you are shaking your heads no, and I, I would tend to agree with that. But he, the, the, the term hero is used in so many different ways that it does almost have to be defined. I'm not saying that there can't be heroes even in our world today. Um, I, I believe that those that risk their lives for other people, firefighters, police officers, all these men and women could legitimately, our soldiers could be considered heroes. They save people's lives. But there's another negative aspect to that, hero worship, where you have someone that you just admire, but hero worship implies not, not just an admiration, but literally almost a type of, of worship um, where maybe people have posters in their rooms up of different things, and they literally talk about this person all the time. And, and that, that is, goes too far and too much of an obsession sometimes even toward people rather than having our ultimate um, focus on God. So when we talk about Bible characters being our heroes, we just need to kind of qualify that. Should we strive to emulate them? You might have even have heard a preacher get excited about a Bible character and say, we need to be more like so-and-so, be more like King David. And... Um, so that would beg the question then, if you hear that, well, okay, which David? <laughs> the David that, um, that valiantly um, defended God in the midst of a huge giant where all his fellow countrymen were running away. The David that rejoiced as the Ark of the Covenant was coming in to the city of David, Jerusalem, to the tabernacle. The David that wrote these Psalms that obviously he pours out his heart to God, that David would be a good one to emulate. But there's another David, isn't there? There's David the adulterer. There's David the murderer. There's David who, from what we can tell in, in the account, probably seems to be somewhat neglectful of his own children. That would not be the David we want to be like. So we just need to have this understanding up front as, as we study this, is we're studying this realistically. Why does God include these stories then of these men and women who have these great moments where they stand for God? And then, you know, in David's case and many others, they still fail. They fail miserably, really. Well, we're to learn from their examples, Right. That's, I think that's obvious. When they do right, we don't look to them and say, be more like Moses or be more like 
Elijah. But when they do right, it's a testimony. We point to God's grace in their lives. Look what God did in the life of Moses. Look what God did in the life of Elijah, um, your, whatever your favorite, Gideon, whatever your favorite Old Testament character is, David. Look what God did. That's the best way to, to approach these things. And that's the way that we're going to approach this study. Whenever um, David takes a stand for God and is really, like the text says, a man after God's own heart, or we'll call it a man with a heart for God, then we say, look at the great work that our great God did in his life. When they fail, and all of these figures do, then that points us to something else, doesn't it? It points us, and let's say in King David's um, example, when he fails, and he fails many times, um, and it's tragic, it's some of these failures are some of the more tragic stories in all the Old Testament. Almost hate to go over them, although we will. When David fails, what, is, what do we need to take from that? He points us to his need and our need for a Messiah and a king who can fulfill God's law and meet his righteous standard, thus providing salvation. All of these Old Testament characters in their weakness point to the fact that they are not the ultimate Messiah. They are not the ultimate king. They're not the ultimate prophet. All the Old Testament really points us to the fact that we need someone to come to be all these things that nobody, none of our heroes in the Old Testament could ever be our Savior. So ultimately, David's life points to the fact and all these do, that Jesus is the real hero, should be the real hero of our story. And when we have that framework, then we can look objectively, and we don't have to cover up or, make, or, or, or try to make light of David's sins. We can just examine them and learn from them, but also rejoice as the man with a heart for God stands firm for him. Well, let's look a little bit more here. Um, now, I'm going to use an interesting example. I'm going to go to the New Testament to help this principle out tonight. And the principle is, it is by God's grace alone that we are able to serve him. And Paul tells us this. So turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're just going to go through this quickly. But Paul gives us this principle. Now, Paul would be another one of those that you might have heard a sermon about. We need to act more like Paul. And actually, Paul does say, that he calls his followers, or the followers of Jesus Christ, to follow his example. But he doesn't call for us to have hero worship towards him that just ignores his humanness, if I can put it that way. Paul, in this passage, reminds us that all the good that he accomplishes, all the great things, it's not himself. And all the great things that we're going to see in David's life, we need to remember, it's not David. But apart from God, we are sinners without hope. 1 Timothy 1, starting at verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Why is he thanking Jesus? Who hath enabled me or given me strength for that he counted or he judged me faithful, putting or appointing me into the ministry. He's basically saying here, Jesus is the one that gave me strength. Jesus is the one that decided when I was ready for this ministry, that I was at a level of faithfulness, um, that I could be 
responsible for the level of ministry that I'm in. He appointed me to this ministry service. It was all Jesus is what Paul's saying here. Don't count me your hero. Don't exalt me. It was all Jesus. Because why? Well, verse 13, Paul says, remember who I was, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, or one literally probably as um, he had believers even thrown into prison and they had personal injury done. I mean, Paul might have even been responsible for the death of some Christians. You know, um, Paul knows his background. And he doesn't want people worshiping him or worshiping his example. He wants them to worship Jesus Christ. Um, he points out that he was a slave to his sin. He was a vicious antagonist of believers and a blasphemer of God. Isn't that hard to imagine that Paul, the apostle Paul, but in the fact that he, he had his own way before he trusted Christ, he was pursuing God in his own way. He was literally blaspheming the truth of who Jesus was. And you know what? David would agree with Paul in this regard. David says in Psalm 53, verse 2 through 3, you don't have to turn there. Just keep, we're, we're not done from Timothy yet. Um, but uh, Psalm 53 says, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. And David says, they've all fallen away. They've all gone back together. They have become filthy. There is none who does good. Not, not even one David from his own testimony says, there's not, it's not a one of us who deserves hero worship. We've all done wrong. And it's God that does the work in us. David's testimony as well. Unbelievers are slaves to their sin. They have no concern for God is what David's pointing out there. But thankfully, because of the mercy of God, he still saves us and he still uses us. And so again, as we get into the study of David, when we see David at his highest levels and his greatest achievement spiritually, we need to praise the mercy of God in his life. Um, because by the mercy of God, we can be saved for a purpose. So go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, the second part of verse 13 there. Paul has just given that description of himself before he trusted Christ. But he said, but I obtained or received mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Now, don't misunderstand what Paul is saying there. He's not kind of giving himself an out. It kind of just reads that way. Well, you know, God... I have, and, and even that word, I obtained mercy, sounds like it was a work or something that he achieved. A better translation would be, I received mercy. It was something that God and his grace gave me. But then he says, I did it ignorantly in unbelief. He's not saying here, God gave me mercy because I just didn't know what I was doing. Some of you guys out there, you, you know, I know you sin and I know you're sinning purposely, but God gave me mercy because I just didn't understand don't misunderstand what he's saying there. He's just qualifying. He's describing that even though he thought he was pursuing what God wanted him to pursue, and that is wiping out the Christians or dealing with the Christians, in effect, he was ignorant. He wasn't 
Um, he In unbelief, he was ignorantly following his own way. He's just describing that, okay? Let's continue. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant. It overflowed for me with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Notice in all of this, he's pointing all of what he is and what God has made him. He's pointing it back to Jesus. He's not taking any of the credit, right? This is a faithful or trustworthy saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I am the foremost. And again, he's thinking back to what his former life used to be. And in Paul's humility, humility here, he's not exalting himself in any way. He's marveling. I can't believe from where I've been and from where Jesus has taken me. This is marvelous. This is amazing. Jesus Christ, or verse 16, sorry. Howbeit for this cause I obtained, or for this reason I received, that, that idea, not that he achieved or obtained mercy, but God gave it to him. I received mercy in God's grace, that in me first, or as foremost, the foremost sinners in view there, Jesus Christ might show forth display all long suffering or perfect patience. And aren't you glad that the patience that Jesus shows us is perfect, that it's not tainted in any way, that Jesus never gets irritated with us for bothering him too much or for, you know, not getting control over a sin habit or for falling. Now, correction may come, certainly, but Jesus never gets irritated with us. He has that perfect patience, long-suffering for a pattern or example to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. And so now he gives all the glory to God, to, to the Lord Jesus Christ, now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So here we have, first he shows us believers depend on God. Paul was changed from a persecutor of Christians to a faithful servant of Christ because he depended upon God. And again, to apply this to David, when David depended upon God, he rose to great heights. And there are some beautiful moments where you know that he, unlike the rest of his countrymen in a lot of ways, is fully depending upon God and God does amazing things through him. But believers have also been granted mercy for a purpose. God had a purpose for Paul's life. God had a purpose for David's life. God has a purpose for our lives. And David talks about this in Psalm 57. You can turn there, Psalm 57, 1 through 5. Because if we're going to talk about David, we ought to at least use some of his words, right? <laughs> and this again, David points out that God is showing him mercy for a purpose. God has a purpose for his life. He says, be merciful unto me, O God, be merciful unto me, for my soul trusteth, or it has a picture of, I take refuge in thee, yea, in the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge, unto these calamities, these storms of destruction that, that he's waiting to pass by. That's one thing about David's life, he went through a lot of storms, a lot of difficulties, and God brought him through. And so he learned this. This is dependency upon the Lord. I will cry unto God most high, unto God that performeth all things for me. 
the idea of fulfilling his purpose really for me. He's saying, God has a purpose. He'll deliver me. I can put all my trust and dependence in God. He shall send from heaven and save me from the reproach of him that would swallow me up. God shall send forth his mercy. That picture of steadfast, loyal love is the same word for mercy. And his truth, or he's talking about God's faithfulness. David knows that he, in and of himself, is very unfaithful many times. He's going to make mistakes. But God's perfect faithfulness is always going to be there to keep him secure. My soul is among lions, and I lie even among them that are set on fire. It really has a picture of two things that um, Old Testament people or, or people during this time feared was fire and angry, vicious beasts. So he puts them together amid fiery beasts. So obviously whatever David's facing in the Psalm, it's pretty intense. And as we go through his life, we're going to see he faced a lot of intense situations. A lot of people that turned on him, even his own son, right? Even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let thy glory be above all the earth. What is the ultimate purpose that David understands that his purpose is because of all that God has done for him? To give God glory. And that's our ultimate purpose. And we're going to see many times that David does this. We read the Psalms. We see David giving glory to God in the midst of all of his challenges and difficulties. David knows his purpose is to obey God, to depend upon him, and to give him the worship, the glory that he desires, that he deserves. So just a couple more things here as we get started. Um, it is also by God's grace, next major point here, that we can have spiritual success in our lives. It's by God's grace alone that we are able to serve him. Paul pointed that out. David made that clear. Only by God's grace can he serve him effectively. But by God's grace, he also gives us spiritual success. And God has a moral will for our lives that we must willingly submit to. God's moral will is found in Scripture, and he expects us to obey. We have a choice in that. Am I going to obey God's word or not? And by God's grace, we can obey his word. We can obey him and have spiritual success. Now, I'll give you an example here of that um, with something that sometimes we don't always understand, maybe as well as we should. But back to the time of David, and we'll go back to the time of Samuel here. Do you remember when the people came to Samuel and said, we want a king? All right, and we'll get to that passage here in just a minute. That's 1 Samuel 8. Well, actually, what I want you to do first, there's a couple more passages here. Turn to Deuteronomy 17 while we're talking about this. With that in mind, that picture of Israel coming to Samuel asking for a king, was Israel's sin with God the fact that they wanted a king? Was that the problem? Do you know what I'm talking about? Were, were they actually sinning? against God by ever even desiring or expecting, let's say expecting a king. Yeah. Was it Pam? they wanted to be like other countries, mm -hmm. which meant they were trying to look like everybody else and be like everybody else. They thought that was yeah. So what you're saying is they had a, a wrong motive in wanting a king. 
Was there anything in God's law that said Israelites will never have a king? Okay. No. I mean, God was the ultimate king for Israel, right? And in the book of Judges in particular, um, Joshua dies and God reigns over them directly as king and expects them to obey and they fail miserably at that. And so he has to continue to raise up deliverers throughout the book of Judges. Um, we'll talk more about the book of Judges because actually, in one sense, the Samuel's life is the real end of the story of the Judges. He's the last judge. Samuel's life could have been taken place, I think it's a good possibility, around the same time as the events in Ruth. Some scholars even say that maybe the events in Samson took place at the same time. Eh, I'm not quite so convinced on that. But um, Samuel was the last judge of Israel. Um, we'll be looking at more of that, you know, as, as we continue here. But no, in fact, Deuteronomy 17 points out specifically that God in his law expected at some point that Israel would have a king. So chapter 17, verse 14, when thou art come into the land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee and shall possess it and shall dwell therein and shall say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me. Thou shalt in any wise, you may indeed set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. They, he gives them permission to do that. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. Now here's the rules for this, very specific rules for what the king should and should not do. And we need to um, continue to compare this list with King Saul and King David. Um, he shall, verse 16, not multiply or acquire many horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt, to the end that she, he should acquire, multiply, acquire many horses. So don't acquire a whole lot of horses. Why? <laughs> yeah, well, that's actually a really good, pretty, a good description. Um, what, what did most of the kings do at this time? If they even had access to horses, not all the kings did in the land, but if, if you had access to horses, it was a show that you had the Cadillac, right? You had all the power. And God didn't want the king of Israel to be bragging about all of the power and all of the resources that God had given him. And you'll see throughout the line of kings and first and second kings, they're constantly getting into trouble for good kings. I think it was Hezekiah. Um, was one of those. They just, they couldn't quite get what God was saying here. Just be humble. Yeah. I, I can't remember if it's a psalm, but it was some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord. Yes. Right? So it's that power aspect of it. Don't multiply horses. Yeah. Yeah. Who, who are you trust putting your God. trust in? Uh, your horses or your God? So... But notice God doesn't even say, it doesn't, doesn't say they can't have any horses, but just don't put all your dependence in that. That's, yeah, that's, that's great, Rob. That's really good. So this didn't come after they had asked for a king, these verses? No, this was, this was when they first entered the land. Okay. Deuteronomy, right before Moses passed away, this is what he gave them. And so there was an, an expectation at some point that a king would come. Yeah. I look at another side of that, too, that my preference is looking back at the Old Testament, especially the fact that Joshua or any of those people, but to realize they did fall 
in many cases of a severe penalty and other cases the Lord allowed them to come back as, as he did with Joshua. So it's an example for us to look at and say, you know, just as we, we are not fully sanctified at this time in our lives, so we're going we're gonna to have the human side to us, the yeah. Adam side. Yeah. And that, uh, here's an example, look at the greatness of those people and yet they failed and yet God used them again. In many cases, some of them put away, but. Um, what is one of the most powerfully um, used Psalms? I, I mean, I'm speaking this from, I, I guess, experience or whatever, but the Psalm that David wrote after his sin with Bathsheba, where he repents and how often has God used that Psalm with all of us that recognize we've really blown it. We've really messed up. And yet, even with something as horrific as what David did, God had forgiveness for him and how encouraging that is to us. We learn from the foibles, from the sins and reminded of that. That's good, Floyd. Um, verse 17, neither shall he multiply wives to himself. Boy, the kings blew that one. <laughs> you read the story. Uh, Solomon, right? That is hard. And it's almost like, you know, God's having Moses say this, but he's pointing ahead to Solomon that his heart not turn away. That's exactly Solomon had access to Deuteronomy, the wisest man that ever lived. You know, it's a, it's a sobering reminder to us that we can have all this scripture and still it, it, we could still give in to temptation. So uh, God said early on, don't multiply wives. Just and we're going to even see in, in the beginning of Samuel's story, the difficulty with even a man with just with two wives. Two wives isn't too many, right? As long as it's not a lot of wives, well, no, that's not God's intent. One man, one woman for a lifetime. And don't get that complicated. Don't get that messed up. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself excessive silver and gold. Don't depend on wealth. It, I should add this. What was a main reason um, that kings would multiply wives? Was there a good practical reason for that, or were they just um, giving in to lustful temptation? Wasn't it more Probably. high kingdoms? Yes. Yep. It, it was to have that allegiance with other kingdoms. You can have that peace treaty. You know, if the enemy king... One way to get the enemy king from another nation to stop attacking you is to marry one of the king's daughters. All of a sudden, hey, you're family. All right, now we have to have a peace treaty, okay? But in doing that, what are you putting your dependence in? Peace treaties. You're putting your, really, you're putting your dependence in politics other than God. And God says, don't do that. So there's, God was clear. His people should have known this. Verse 18, and it shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is approved or which is before the priest has the idea of approval with the priest, the Levites, and it shall be with him and he shall read therein all the days of his life that he may learn to fear hit the Lord his God to keep all the words of this law in these statutes to do them. Isn't this great? What is one of the primary responsibilities of the king is to remember to meditate upon God's word, to be reading God's word, studying God's word. You see how what the values of God are as opposed to the values of the world? 
You know, the world's all focused on politics. What does God say for his king? Make sure you know my word really well. And um, keep a copy of my word that you can constantly have as a resource. And it has to be approved by the priest that it's accurate. And you read that, just like he told Joshua, all the days of thy life, so that he learns to fear the Lord. I don't think King Saul did that very much in the end, and he should have. But don't we hear from, from David's own mouth how much he loves the law of the Lord? David took this seriously. Now, he messed up too. But David um, made the words of the law of God and the statutes a part of his life, a part of his daily routine. Why? Verse 20, that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren, that he not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, to the end that he may prolong his days or continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel, so that he doesn't get haughty or proud, which again is a really big problem if you're the most powerful ruler in the world. Solomon, as humble as he was in the beginning, pride in the multiplication of wives or what finished him in the end. Um, but also I think there's an overall emphasis here. There's an expectation that the king is not just going to keep all this to himself, but he's going to teach the kingdom the ways of the Lord. He is going to have the words of God in front of his people at all times. And David, in music, in the worship, would constantly use music to put the words of God and the testimonies of God before the people. Again, King Saul, not so much. But David um, followed this very, very closely. He took this um, responsibility seriously. So for a king, God's word is worthy of our attention. It's worthy of the effort of us remembering and knowing God's word well. And it's worthy or um, we need to be dedicated to God's word. That was the expectation for the king. So let's turn then one more chapter here to, to first, back to 1 Samuel chapter 8, 4 through 7. That was God's expectation for the king that he would establish. But that's not the way that the children of Israel followed. And again, this, this is all preparatory. We'll get more into this later. God had a certain way that he spelled out in Deuteronomy that he wanted his people to seek after a king and what he wanted his king to act and how he wanted him to act. But God will also many times allow what we think we want, even if it's against his will, in order to correct us for being unfaithful. And unfortunately, that's a testimony that we have here in 1 Samuel 8. Verse 4, then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old. Well, wow, what a great way to respect your leader that has sacrificed for years. You know, <laughs> you're old. <laughs> We're tired of you. We want a king. And thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now, that was Samuel's stumbling block. That was on him. And we'll see that. Samuel wasn't perfect either. He was a faithful servant. But he had a horrible example in the priest Eli, and he let his sons go as well. And it didn't help his testimony. 
now make or appoint us a king to judge us like all the other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. Well, why? Samuel prayed unto the Lord, which is what we should always do when we're bothered by something that's going on in ministry. As a leader, take it to the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, interesting, he doesn't say, you go to those people and you tell them, you remind them of Deuteronomy 17, and you remind them that this is my rules and what I said, and they're not following that. And no, they're not going to get a king right now. Um, complaining, bunch of grumpy people. It's not what he says for him to do. This obviously has been something that they've continued to work up and be bothered by and bother Samuel about. And so sometimes, folks, uh, when we continue to pursue something that God has clearly said no to, he may give it to us, and we may think that's success, and we should actually be really frightened and concerned when God allows us something that we know is not right, because he's going to use that to correct us. And we're going to wish that we would have just followed his ways. God can use what we want um, to remind us that we're being unfaithful and sinning against him. That's not the way that you want um, God to work in your life. Better to follow his way. And they, the, the people should have followed his way in Deuteronomy 17, but they didn't. And the Lord said unto Samuel, then hearken. He basically says, Samuel, listen, obey the voice of the people. That had to have been hard. <laughs> obey the voice of the people and all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee. Ultimately, who have they rejected? God. That I should not reign over them. And God says, they're going to get what they want, and I'm going to deal with them for disobeying me. Yeah. Can I say another interesting factor, if you look at the people that we have represented in the New Testament, at least as Christ, they had seen Christ, and once he ascended, he told them the, the uh, Holy Spirit would come upon them. So pe people like Peter, yes, they made mistakes, and Paul, well, all of them made mistakes, but they had that interaction that we have access to today with through the Holy Spirit, with God in Christ. Yeah, yeah, that's true, and God's grace. Um, but the people in this in this circumstance, um, God is going to deal with them and give them. Now, it, think about this. You have to be careful about this because you're playing the what if game. Obviously, in God's sovereign control, what happens is what He had always planned to happen. But if they had followed Deuteronomy 17, I've wondered a few times: Would King Saul have ever been king at all? If they would have waited for God's timing, this is just my speculation. At the right time, God would have appointed Samuel to anoint David. But King Saul was the people's choice. Everything that they thought a king needed to be, God gave them in King Saul. And in the end, they regretted it. Um, and we're going to see his failure. And really, we're going to come to the end, and, and, and only God knows, but was Saul even a believer? And I'm going to answer that right now. Um, but all of this to say, as we get started on this, again, back to two specific things that kind of encapsulates all this. We're going to see in David's life that it's God's grace that allows him to be faithful and to serve him well. Um, and that when he has spiritual success, that that's by God's grace too. 
And also when he does have his moral failures, that God, just like God gave the people of Israel what they wanted, God may give, allow David to be successful in his own mind, but there's going to be consequences from that. God uses his servants' failures for his purposes as well. So David and his successes points to God's grace. David and his failures will point to God's sovereign control, even in the midst of his servants' failures, and um, a lesson for us to stay faithful to God. As we see at the end of David's life, what he had to face, it reminds us, just don't ever go there. Remain faithful to God. Through all of what David experienced, we're going to have some wonderful lessons and some sobering lessons, but all this will be good as far as our walk with the Lord and being faithful to him. So looking forward to that. That's all preparatory, and we need to get to um, our prayer requests. So.